Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're wrapping up the Cloud Nine saga by punching nationalist zealots in the jaw, and it feels so fine. Excalibur number 65, White Lies, Dark Truths, was originally published in June 1993, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Chris Eliopoulos on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. Cinderella said to Snow White, how does love get so off course? Oh, all I wanted was a white knight with a good heart, soft touch, fast horse. Ride me off into the sunset, baby, I'm forever yours. Here we are at the epic conclusion of the fall of the bad version of RCX and the rise of the good version of RCX, I think, maybe, we'll talk about it. Plus, Brian doesn't die and Rachel returns and Kurt and Cerise are in love and everybody gets a moment. It's a truly action-packed 20-something pages, lots for our intrepid team to hash out. But who are we? I am Dr. Anna Bapard. I talk about sex and gender and superheroes and pop culture and academic places and popular ones, including at ComicsXF, where you should all be reading the Our Best X-Men Stories series I edit, and yeah. at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars, where you can find me and yeah. Andrew flying our analytical wares throughout the week every week. I'm joined as always by Mav. Please add your credentials to the fray. I, I'm still on vacation. This is um <laughs> there are no there there are no no um this is my academic, you know, I I'm I took the summer off and there are as this releases, I guess like three more weeks of that. I'm going back to work soon, so Right now, I'm just sort of, you know, a, a blissfully unemployed, but I guess I'm a professional podcaster for the moment on this and another show. But, <laughs> and then, like, you know, when that's over, when the summer's over, I, I guess I will be a, you know, a, a lecturer of digital narrative, interactive design, composition, and literature at the University of Pittsburgh. That's, that's what I do. But it's summer, so like I'm just I'm a bum. I'm a podcasting bum, and I'm enjoying it. Oh my god, <laughs> I love that presentation of your life. As though I know you're not insanely busy every day, regardless of whether you're technically at work or on vacation. But this is the least busy. I've, I mean, yes, I am. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm like podcast time travel. I lose track of when we are. I don't <laughs> like it's 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 unlikely. I'm defending a dissertation as we speak because I think that would be next week for the listener or two. I don't know. I've I've seriously lost time tr tr track of like real time, so I can't do the podcast time travel thing. I'm I'm on vacation. It's summer. I'm enjoying my beer. 
Thank you. <laughs> Good enough. Andrew, please add your powers to this climactic melee. <laughs> I am Dr. J. Andrew Man. I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and project lead for the Claremont Run until tomorrow, uh, which of course <laughs> has me feeling human emotions this day. I also have um, colonialism on the mind because the Pope came to Canada yesterday to apologize oh, for residential schools. I saw that. And there's a lot of problematic parallels to some of the symbolism in this <sighs> comic. So I have just no idea mm -hmm. what to expect from me today. So instead, I'm just going to hype um, Mav's podcast. Fox Pop did an episode on Ms. Marvel that was oh. so good. Uh, and Thank if anyone you. was interested in that TV series, go listen to that because they had Sophia Hussein on, who's been on our pod before. Uh, and just the analysis of that show and breaking it down and helping me figure out like how I felt about it was really good. Thank Aww. you. I appreciate that. That was it. Was, it that was really fun. Uh, Sophia's always it great. It was so good. On on this show as well but also just i felt validated in a lot of ways for my feelings on i, I there's been weird pseudo negative but also positive people people just sort of takes on what ms marvel was and then yeah. it's just like no here's a person who knows stuff look yeah <laughs> okay, so, and that's so, what it was <laughs> yeah and, and i i really i really enjoyed that episode so thank you oh i love that yeah i podcast time travel i literally just came upstairs to record this from a call-in on CBC Radio, the subject of which Ooh. is, is the Pope's... No, no, I wasn't on it. I was just listening to it. It was like <laughs> the subject of the, the subject of the call-in was, is the Pope's apology good enough? And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Everybody's got a different take and everything, but I don't want to engage with this. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's talk about some other stuff. Let's talk about imaginary fascist overlords. Um... <laughs> team is joined this week by a scholar and educator and Excalibur mega fan in Dr. Valentino Zulu. Welcome, Valentino. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Valentino Zulu is an Ansfield-Wolf postdoctoral fellow in English and Public Humanities at Ursuline College. He is the former Ohio Center for the Book Scholar-in-Residence at Cleveland Public Library, where he continues to lead the Get Graphic program. He is American editor of the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics and is a practicing licensed independent social worker in psychoanalytic training at the Cleveland Psychoanalytic Center. He has published academic articles in The Usual Places, the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics, Inks, the Journal of the Comics Studies Society, and the Journal of Pop popular culture, and more. So I know from chatting with you a little bit, Valentino, that you're a big Excalibur fan, but hit us with your comics origin story. When did you start falling in love with funny books? <laughs> All right. So my comics origin story, it starts, so the first comic I saw was Sonic the Hedgehog issue number 30. Uh, one Amazing. of my friends showed it to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget because I remember the cover. One of my friends showed it to me. I'd been really into Sega Genesis as a, as a kid and I was somewhere around there I was playing the Sonic game and my friend showed me Sonic the Hedgehog issue 30 and then it sort of stuck with me and one time I was at Revco which is now CBS and I saw an issue of Sonic the Hedgehog and I made my mom buy it and it's issue 40 so 10 issues later I don't know the timeline like if it was like around the same time if it took me a year to pick up pick my first comic I don't know but I just know that the first issue I saw was 30 and then I got 40 and so that's my comic origin story and I've read comics since. Well tell us about how you discovered Excalibur sort of how did that happen and when did that happen? Yeah so while well, I was reading like Sonic comics and I read a bunch of other stuff for a while for some reason I picked up Uncanny 450 um, which was a Claremont and Davis issue. I had not been into X-Men before that I think probably I saw the movie or something and so I went to go you know check out the comics and I picked up 
450 and I sort of, I really liked what they were doing. And I know that this may cause some internal screaming for Anna, but I didn't hate the Rachel and Kurt story back then. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, I, I like read that. I probably read that before I'd read a bunch of the older stuff. So it didn't seem as weird to me as when I went back and reread it. And then I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> like Honestly, it got the weirdest for me when we had the flashback that we had in Excalibur 64 of Rachel being handed the Bamf doll as a baby and then me thinking, oh boy, that's your future boyfriend. That's when it got really weird to me. <laughs> but yeah, for, for our listeners, I'm sure some of them will remember, but Excalibur 450 includes um, a callback to uh, the Warlord issue in which Kurt is wearing his costume from that issue and shares a kiss with Rachel in the danger room on board a pirate ship. So yeah, hard not to be sold on that kind of action. Anyway, yes, please continue. So I read, yeah, so I read, I read Uncanny 450 and I thought this is super fun. And so I am obsessional. And so I started just reading everything Claremont wrote and I recognized Rachel and Kurt. And so I found the Excalibur issues. I remember I got most of my like early comics at a random comic shop nearby that another one had closed. They had bought all their stuff. And they were sitting, they were, I just was buying stuff out of 25 cents cents. I probably bought like most of X Factor, most of Excalibur, like a lot of that old stuff for 25 cents each or 50 cents. And I don't know, I, I was a lifeguard and I just used all my lifeguard money to buy comics that summer. Um, so, <laughs> and so somewhere in there, and it's not in order for me in my mind and how it all happened, but I know that it was that Claremont and Davis issue. I recognized Claremont as an author and I just like went online, started reading more. And there used to be a website called Comics Forum with an X, which I think is now gone because I've looked for it a few times. Um, and Claremont had, would post on there. And so I sort of became more and more interested in him through that and just kept picking up more X-Men comics that he wrote. And then I read everything else. But mostly I was just looking for his <laughs> stuff at first. Well, can I ask you what particularly drew you to Excalibur? You know, like what was it about, you know, that uncanny 450 issue that kind of gave you a sense of a sense of that vibe that made you want to go back? And really, if it's because you're rooting for Kurt and Rachel, that is totally fine. It's a safe space. No judgment here. <laughs> well, not even so close to the I, weirdest well, relationship one... in this. No, it's not. <laughs> so one, I mean, so Kurt's really cute, right? Like, I mean, I agree with you, Anna. Like, I mean, he's really cute, and I definitely, ha- as a teenager, was totally into the Roberto Aguirre Sacasa issues of Nightcrawler, oh, where he's like yeah. in a towel. So. Some, somewhere bound up in all of that, my fantasies about Kurt, and then also Rachel in the fantastic Excalibur costume, pre, you know, turning into her Phoenix costume. All of that sort of just like worked for me. And um, I was like, I, I, I just need to read this. And then I loved Kitty too. Brian and Megan, I obviously didn't know who they were at that point and did, did, they didn't intrigue me that much. And I don't know they intrigue me that much now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, it was, I mean, it was, it was David. Davis's art, you know, in the uncanny issue and then going back and seeing the covers of Excalibur and thinking like, everybody looks so cool. I have to read this. Let's dovetail from that into some of your work. Like, I know a lot of your work is sort of on intersections of mental health and comics. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Like what interests you about that area of study? Um, Yeah, so I'm I'm interested in mental health and comics for, I guess, many reasons. I think probably because it helped me like as a a kid. But I think one of the one of the things I'm interested in right now is like what I was writing about in my dissertation and what I want to write about more. I'm interested in 
what historians have called the psychologization of America, which in very short ways, sort of the way that we sort of standardize a language in the 20th century to talk about mental health in the way that like, you know, when I say anxiety or depression, you know what I mean. Forever, you know, people have tried to define what happens internally. But in the 20th century, we sort of had a standardized language that created a way for people to talk about understanding what we mean about well to think about our internal lives now that language fails us obviously but that aside comics participated in what we call the psychologization of america and i'm sort of really interested in that and how many comics sort of disseminated that knowledge um that's like one of the things i'm interested in like as a as i guess a as a psychoanalyst in training and then a and a comic scholar but i'm also just interested in how comics can display our internal lives I mean, I think there's so many examples of that of people that have used comics to explore their internal experiences, whether it's like, you know, Rick Remender using his using his therapy to then create the comic series Blow, or, you know, Alison Bechdel displaying her comics and Are You My, her, her psychoanalysis and Are You My Mother, or anything like that. I'm sort of, so I have like different interests, I guess. What do you think is particularly interesting, if anything, is particularly interesting about superhero comics in that context? I love superhero comics and they're, they are where I started. Um, and so I do think for me, superhero comics are one of the, you know, they are committed to understanding trauma through a non-diagnostic lens. Um, I think that okay. still, like, I mean, they continue to think about it. So this is a big discussion. I have to think about how to like make this really short. Um, oh yeah, so... I'm sorry. I, I did one of those horrible, like explain an entire field of study for us, please and go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. So if this makes any sense, and you can cut this if it doesn't make sense. So I'm a, I'm, I'm a psychoanalyst by training, so I'm not committed to the DSM, though I had to learn it because, you know, insurance companies make us use it. But yeah. um, most <laughs> most DSM categories are rooted in, in biology, mostly by this point, in biological psychiatry. PTSD is one of the few categories left that isn't, that is rooted in, in cultural, like, in, you know, cultural experience, meaning just like the personal experience of, of, the, of the human being and understanding that somebody's experience can affect their mental health in DSM wise. And the superhero comic continues to persist in understanding that our experiences affect our mental health, whereas more and more psychiatry defined by biology has moved away from, from thinking about outside factors. PTSD mm -hmm. remains to be one of the only ones in superhero comics, as I said, are committed to understanding that in my mind. Well, there's a lot there. Okay, let's do an issue summary and maybe we can talk <laughs> about the practicalities of some of this with what Brian goes through in this issue because I thought you might have some insights about his character journey that sort of comes to a head in this issue. So why don't we do that? We'll do issue summary and get into the issue. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never make you almost die in incredible pain to prove your loyalty. But as always, let's start today's rebellion <laughs> with a plot summary. Excalibur 65 opens very romantic with Brian watching Megan in a stasis tube while Peter makes an emotive speech about how he can change him if he just works hard enough. <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Suddenly, the warpy known as Aberdeen Angus storms in, collapses, and begins to revert to human form. Peter orders Luke to put him in stasis while he dashes from the room to escalate his plans for Brian. Elsewhere in the lab, Kurt Cerise and a person who seems to be Kitty but isn't are still working away at science stuff trying to find a cure for the genetic destabilization of the warpies. Kurt deduces that Kitty isn't Kitty and concocts a clever ruse, saying him and Cerise are retiring for the evening, not to their rooms, plural, but to their room, singular. Kurt kisses Cerise, <laughs> kisses Cerise good enough that their warpy guards are convinced they'll be busy getting busy for several hours, giving Kurt and Cerise an opportunity to do some freelance investigating. But first they realize... 
they're in love. As Kurt performs a risky teleport, they embrace, Cerise declaring she'd rather they risk their lives together than apart. Meanwhile, on Otherworld, Roma and Saturnine watch the energy matrix collapse. Saturnine says Roma will lose control of the Captain Britain Corps and the multiverse, but Roma doesn't care. She swears to stop interfering in the affairs of men. Back on Cloud Nine, Peter tries to convince Brian of his nationalistic duty, but Brian is unconvinced, especially when he realizes the Megan in the stasis tube is actually just a hologram. Peter declares Brian a lost cause, but Brian doesn't go down without a fight. However, he does go down, badly beaten with a broken neck. Thankfully, Roma, going back on her promise from five seconds ago, interferes and restores his powers, which were fading because he was still wearing the wrong costume, apparently. Elsewhere, in the suspended animation room, Kurt and Cerise revive their old friends and meet some new ones in the form of RCX agents Gabriel and Michael, who've been in stasis since 1988, and we can tell by their fashion. We get a bunch of exposition about how the fading of the energy matrix relates to the supposed genetic destabilization of the Warpies, and then it's time for the climax, a mega melee involving Excalibur and multiple factions of Warpies declaring their allegiance to various sides. Brian wants to kill Peter, but Kurt says that will only make him a martyr, which is what Peter wants. As a compromise, Kurt knocks him out with an uppercut, saying he hates politicians. As Kitty wonders what to do with Cloud9, Alistair tells him that he'll stay on with Gabriel and Michael to care for the Warpies. This resolution is interrupted by the start of the next story, as a rumbling and flash of energy produces none other than Rachel Summers. Everyone hugs, but the joy is short-lived. Rachel tells them she can't stay, she remembers the future, and she has to go back to save it. Alright, Valentino, let's start with your first impressions of the issue. Things that stood out to you upon rereading this one that you're particularly eager to discuss. Yeah, so I I thought of, I was really, I forgot that we get discussion of conspiracy theory in this issue, um, oh, which yeah. is which, <laughs> which is great. And yeah, punching nationalists is, is excellent. I am super excited to talk about that. I'm in, I'm really interested in talking about Brian's journey, you know, and how he thinks about nationalism because he has that moment where he wants to talk about it, and, I, and, it, and it's really interesting what he does say. Also, uh, just to read and Nightcrawler. We have to talk about that because I think it's going to, I know I think different people will be on different sides, so I'm, I have, I'll think that will be Ooh. fun to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious about how Andrew and Mav are feeling about this one because I know you've been a bit lukewarm on a couple of the ones leading up to this one, both of you for different reasons. So let's start with you, Mav. How are you, how are you feeling about this one? This issue as a whole is fine. <laughs> okay, Again, still, still lukewarm. I mean, it's not... M- so if you can tell, this is not my favorite Alan Davis arc. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a shame because it's like his last one. But nothing in this is distasteful for me. And in fact, I like it better than last issue where I felt like there was a whole lot of nothing happening. Like there's some plot progression here. I think he knows he's leaving and there's a lot of tidying up really fast in this issue. So that's my, that's one of my problems with it. It feels like a lot of, okay, I really have to end this story of dealing with why Brian's powers were waning and coming back because I, I was doing a thing. And so Roma, remember Roma? We haven't, I mean, you don't? Well, here's a reminder of who Roma is. So she's going to show up and she's going to wave her hands and do some magic. And yeah, your suit's fixed. And so now you have powers again. And yeah, that broken neck, don't worry about it. So there's a lot of convenience in this story for me. But unlike last issue where there was a lot of standing around, I sort of dig the chaos of this one. Like seeing the Warpy on Warpy massacre is kind of neat, you know, and seeing everybody's like, hey, you know, I'm going to be part of this fight, but your power is to make costumes. Don't worry about it. You know, there was things like that. I, <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was neat. So I don't I don't hate this or anything. I just um, it's not like I, I don't consider it like one of the 
finest you know comics of all time or anything like that i'm reserving the things that i know will be bullet points like i'm sure we'll discuss the kiss and I'll, you know and things like that I'll, I'll talk about that later but like just as overall impressions i'm like yeah this is a comic you know i i also know what the I, uh, i'm just t- tempering what's going to happen in three episodes for us like i know how my response is to the first non alan davis issue oh, oh. so 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 like i'm so like i normally like to like pretend that i'm reading all these for the first time but i'm not so given that i know where the future is this is fine <laughs> this is damn this is yeah this is comic it's good i enjoyed oh it oh my god I'm, I'm gonna stand up for this one i like this issue even though i do agree that obviously there's a lot of dialogue and plot thread wrapping up and whatnot but i'm, I'm, I'm gonna be standing up for this one any anyway, but andrew how are you how are you feeling um i think i'm with mav unfortunately uh, <laughs> not a, not to insult mav obviously yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that that i really <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I really wanted to like this because we are wrapping up Alan Davis, but it, to me, it fell a little flat. I, I know we'll talk about it, but I found the, the Kurt Cerise relationship problematic because it is trying to romanticize a relationship that had previously been characterized as physical, which I, I liked, and I don't like it suddenly becoming star-crossed lovers. And I, I think, as mentioned before, and obviously Valentino's going to really help us out with this, I, I don't like the portrayal of nationalism in this one. I don't like the metaphor of um, um, the children of Britain rejecting colonialism in 1993 um you know what i mean like there, there's there's ways in which this can read as problematically defensive of colonialism which i find oh. good but also i i don't know how to navigate it so valentino's gonna save us i hope um <laughs> I yeah hope. so I, i'm just I, I think i'm here to listen on that score interesting okay yeah let's start with the kiss just because it comes first sometimes i push kurt stuff to the end so that i'd make sure that we don't spend too much time talking even but it comes before it comes <laughs> before the brian thing so let's start there and then we'll talk about brian so i'll come to you for it first valentino you know what's your mileage on this relationship and you know what's your mileage on this what do i want to say escalation whatever of the relationship these characters declaring their love for each other yeah i'm just curious yeah so i really quickly so i want to res- i want to respond to sort of like we're sort of debating where we fall on this issue if i can yeah. do that quickly of course um i i guess i'm more with you anna and that i like it i'm sort of fall somewhere with mav too like in that i don't think it's it, it's not my favorite story um it's certainly when i when it's not my favorite alan david so i would not re- like give this to like read this but um i don't dislike it especially knowing what's coming um i agree that i but i wanted to say that i do sort of find it Fun, even if it is rushing to 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 finish to to have some plot, but I would say so regarding the kiss. So it's definitely forced, <laughs> but I don't mind it. I don't know. Like for me, considering how much we had to suffer through the love triangle, um, and I th- like in that I just didn't. I didn't think it was in that it was never going to go anywhere. It felt like it was never going to change. I thought like, mm-hmm. great, this is great for Kurt, like that, you know, he's doing something else. Also, I think that this comes up a lot in Davis's work is that he uses sort of space and even confined spaces to in to heat up relationships. And I think he's doing that here. Mm-hmm. Like, it's totally believable to me that these two people that are trapped in this place sort of heat up a romantic relationship, which may not feel real outside of this place, but it, it occurs. Mm-hmm. And I think Davis does this a lot. I mean, he uses space a lot to, like, as I said, to create dynamics or to convey psychological depth and 
sort of progression. I'm thinking of like the kitchen scene at the beginning of the, his run. I'm thinking of just sort of like what he'll do with Brian here and separating him from Megan. Whereas I think he uses space a lot to imply like, okay, if we think about it, like where I'm putting them in this pressure cooker, like it wouldn't be so out of the norm for these two people to imagine that they're in love, even if they're not, especially Ooh. considering they already have a physical relationship. I don't know if they, <laughs> I know he said sure. I just think it sort of, it heats up a transference, right? I'm going to be psychoanalytic for a second, but if there's a transference sure. there and you're putting them in a room together, I'm thinking of like analysis, right? Like if you're in a room with somebody for four days a week, five days a week, you start to have some some feelings, which then if you like actually like pressure them, you're like, maybe I don't feel that. But hey, you're in this place locked up for a while. I can imagine it happening. I like that I reading totally of it. it. Yeah. Well, so that's my question though. So and I'm, I have a question for everybody then based on that. Is that how you read it or is it how you want to read it? And the reason I'm hmm. asking that is, is my favorite catchphrase on this show is, I think Valentino just wrote a better story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I've, I've said this. I don't think I've ever said it on this show. I've said on my other show, I'm like many people. I enjoyed the Harry Potter books at one point, author aside. <laughs> in the last Harry Potter book, there's the point where, you know, they're off in the woods. The, the main three are off in the woods running from wizard Hitler. And Ron has a little hissy fit and he teleports away and that leaves harry and hermione in the woods and then harry and hermione are just stuck in the woods running from voldemort for you know weeks and it's always been my contention that in that story hermione and harry sleep together because they're in a wood they're they're two 18 year olds running from wizard hitler stuck in the woods of course they do right and I buy that for every reason that Valentino just said. And it's not like there's nothing comes of it. I don't think that they belong together. I don't think that they, you know, I don't think they should be a couple after this. I just think that realistically in a story that's not written for 13 year olds, that would be the thing, you know, like you'd start to develop feelings because, oh my God, I'm going to die here. I'm okay with that story. I'm okay with the story of, okay, given that we've now hooked up, I guess we're going to be a couple now because we're 18 year olds and we're confused and we just had sex and like, let's try and figure this out. And like, I guess we're going to be like, Kurt's not that person. Maybe Cerise is that yeah. person. I don't know. I don't know anything about her because of the flaws of what, you know, how the Cerise character was introduced. I don't have enough of that there. And Alan, they, Alan is leaving the book in two issues. So I'll never get that from him. So I don't know that the, like, I would enjoy this more if I felt like the story was, okay, they're convincing themselves they're in love, but are they really? And I don't think that's the story. I think we're supposed to, I think we're supposed to look at this as, oh, Kurt's finally found his forever person. I think the book wants me to buy into the fact that like, oh yeah, they've, this is the long, you know, long unspoken feelings. And it's like, no, she's a character that's like less than 12 issues old. And I know nothing about her other than the fact that, you know, she's a good kisser apparently. Like, so I don't, I don't have the feelings that I feel like the book wants me to have. So that's why I'm wondering wherever other people are with it. Yeah, I think for me, it's a disappointment in the sense that um, Cerise is a very rare female sex positive character in comics at this time period. So I, I don't like that they're suddenly characterizing it as romantic. And even just the way it's framed specifically as I cannot be without you and I love you. Please take me with you. Um, that, I'm that willing felt to die to here. <laughs> Yeah. yeah she's willing to they, die they get teleported to a wall and she's like yeah that's worth it 
<laughs> yes. So I just didn't like it. I thought that it sort of undermines the potential that I was seeing in the character, but that again could be me doing as Matt's saying and, and you know, in my head writing a better story for Cerise. It's so hard because I love that trope, like the like, let's die together instead of living without each other, which is a dark <laughs> trope. And but it has to be handled really right. And I mean, I think about one of my favorite shows is the show Burn Notice, and it did that trope with the Michael and Fiona characters at one of the season breaks, I think maybe at the end of season four. But that was a case where you had so much buildup and so many reasons why that made sense to the nature of these characters' relationships and the nature of sacrifice and going back to be with that person in this moment. It just, it made sense on a character level. I mean, in the terms of some of the self-destructive tendencies of both characters, it just, it made sense. And I loved that moment so much in something like that. And this just has none of that context that makes sense to me. I mean, how do I understand Cerise as a character in a way that would make sense, you know, her making this decision here? Like, I mean, it's just the consequence just isn't there for me because I don't know her. And it's just my complaint about that. And I, I feel so bad about it because I know that we have we have listeners who really like the character of Cerise and she's a character that I really want to like too. There's so much potential of this character, you know, mm. the way that she defies gender norms, she potentially defies biological norms. Like, as Andrew said, she has the potential to be a sex positive character and all of those things are great. And yet the way this scene plays out, it's like she's a prize for Kurt. You know, I yeah. mean, even just think about the visualization of it, you know, like he leads everything, you know, he pulls her in there and then kisses her and then has to explain to her the complexity of what's going on he shows her elements of his powers and she's just like oh and like just everything <laughs> all of her reactions are just like oh wow reactions following his lead he has to tell her how to use her powers i just am not feeling the equanimity between this couple that i would have to feel in order to feel good about that trope of let's die together rather than living apart because if yeah. you don't have the the equanimity within that trope it does become like the woman making a masochistic sacrifice for the man and it's reading a little bit more like that to me here and i don't want to read it that way i want to invest in this it's a beautiful mm. kiss i'm all for romance he wraps his tail around her leg i want to be here for it it's great it's <laughs> beautiful but i'm just i'm not here for it on the emotional level it's a Romeo and Juliet moment, right? Like, I can't live without you, so I'm going to kill myself. And the, the trick of Romeo and Juliet is it's not actually romantic. They're 14 and 16 years old, and they're hormonal, and they're stupid, right? They slept together once, and like that, and and it's it's dumb, and that's what makes that work. And you know, you're, I mean, everybody thinks it's romantic. It's not, right? Cerise, we don't know. I mean, I don't have. I didn't do this ahead of time, and I, I would really love it if one of our listeners does this for us, like, like a Claremont Run style thing. <laughs> I would be amazed if Cerise has fifty lines of dialogue ever before this moment. Right. Like I like go through and count. Go somebody go back and count for me if she has fifty lines before here like um, all panels total i you know there's just no way i bet it's i bet it's less than 30 so i don't know anything about her i just really don't so when i see that she's impulsive enough to want to you know they're declaring their love for each other for the first time and yet i'm willing to die for you um no <laughs> and and like i'm not sure but up until this moment you know we said she's sex positive but we're in code approved world we don't even know that they've slept together. 
it's kind of shocking where Kurt's like, hey, you know, we're going to our room. And she's like, oh, we are? <laughs> you know, so like, am I supposed to read this as though she's like, oh, I'm into it. But, you know, we've not actually done that yet. You know, we've only kissed. So, oh, OK, I, I guess we're going to have sex now is where her head's at, which, you know, is fine if she's there. But how do you get from there to, you know, I love you and. I want to be with you and I'm willing to die for you. And, you know, also this is a person who doesn't know what lipstick is and thought it was food. So like, I have so many questions, like, like literally everything about this makes me go, if I have the Cerise issue where I I get to see like kind of a solo story with her or even a story with her and Kurt. So I get to know who she is. And I think that's what it was supposed to be when they went to the opera, but that, that wasn't yeah. this. Right. So, yeah, yeah. so like I, I, I don't know enough about her to care about her to the extent where I'm like, okay, he's willing to die for me. Like, I, like if Kurt was willing to die for Megan or Rachel or or Kitty or even Brian, I buy that. You know, if one of them are willing to die for, you know, I don't know why she's willing to do this, particularly in that the sacrifice she's making is just blindly teleport with him. I don't know why. And like everything about it is weird. Yeah, I don't know. I want to bring Valentino back into it. But I mean, yeah, I'll just say quickly that it's just we're talking about issues of writing agency, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And there's supposed to be an implied agency with Cerise that's sort of embedded in the idea of this character as a quote unquote strong character, like literally strong, physically strong. She's tall. We also yes, yeah, very- Valentino after. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was so determined to be positive about this issue. And I like, I really want to be. I mean, like, I tweeted out the Curtin Cerise pages and was all like, oh, what pretty pages and whatever. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, I want to read yeah, for them. No I really do. But it's just like, yeah, it's, it's this issue of agency, right? You know, we keep being told that Cerise has agency, but I'm just not shown it enough. And there is something that makes me uncomfortable about this exchange in the sense that, you know, as Nav was saying, she was trying to eat lipstick like three issues ago. Does she know? (laughs) She doesn't know what children are. So like when Kurt brings her into the room, does she know what she's actually signing up for? And that lack of knowledge makes me a little bit nervous. You know, there's a way you could read that positively as like, she has no shame and guilt and is not beholden to gender roles. Therefore, she's this radically positive character, or she's a character that is so ignorant of the physical circumstances of this kind of relationship that she doesn't even know what she's consenting to and therefore can't even consent. So there's like there for me that I find are deeply uncomfortable actually and I'm supposed to be sold on it you know because she seems like a willing participant but because I know so little about what her level and form of knowledge is I just that I can defend a little bit again you come back to that yeah okay but like it's just like I come I come back to the sacrificing thing though and like how am I supposed to believe that she's making an informed choice to die with Kurt when I'm not certain of her ability to consent because she doesn't understand relationships and I just there's a lot of discomfort there for me I don't Mm. know that I believe she doesn't understand relationships so it's it's weird when we say that Cerise isn't conforming to gender I think she's not conforming to gender roles but I think she is conforming to gender I think we are absolutely supposed we're not supposed to read her as non-binary for instance she is female she is decidedly female she's just you know she's not she's deciding to not be a damsel in distress as per 1993 conceptions of gender right like that's where that's where she is but she's definitely 
she, and I think she does understand relationships. She just doesn't know where babies come from. And I think given where we're going, I, I remember that I thought that was stupid. Like she obviously should know that. But I think that just spoilers, she's essentially a clone. She's that grown. So I think that she lives in a world where babies come from test tubes fully formed and she appears to know what sex is and i think that she just considers that a thing you do for fun this is mm -hmm. again something that could be explored and could be interesting if sex only exists for if sex only exists for pleasure and not for procreation then the entire dynamic changes and it becomes a very interesting thing that you can and ha people have written novels about and i am now doing that thing where i'm writing the better story right because that's not here on the page it's what i am interested in i want to see that but it's not here and davis is leaving into issues so it's not going to be right like that's we're not going to get back to that so that's where i'm torn on it yeah i mean it just we just keep coming back to like we don't have enough information right. about this character so we're all kind of doing our yeah. own things of like trying to write either the story that we're afraid that this is or the story that we want this to be right and i feel very torn mm -hmm. between those things because i love that reading of it and i think that that jives with sort of some of what andrew was saying that you know it's trying to romanticize this relationship which in some ways makes it less interesting than a more purely physical relationship which actually interests me a little bit more than the romantic component of the relationship which i think without having a sense of the complex emotionality of cerise is just not working for me but the physical relationship works for me but uh anyway i don't know valentino any responses to to any of this stuff are, are we are we talking you out of it or into it or, or where are you feeling how are you feeling now? you you are thoroughly complicating my relationship to this uh to this uh issue um yeah, no, I, I think I went into it like you, like you, some of you said earlier, like, okay, we're going to be really positive about this because it's like the last three issues of Davis's run and I wanted to feel good about how it ends. And I sort of like glossed over things about Cerise, but as we're talking like, yeah, I do realize that, yeah, we are really projecting a lot onto her. And I think that's because like, we really don't know much about her or at least the story, story-wise we're projecting a lot. We're imagining a lot of stuff that could be going on there that we just don't know about. And so I am definitely now wondering why why I thought many of the things I did about her. But I think I have I, I am I think many of us are talented at this, but I know I am talented at this. I use my own mind and project it onto others and I like read her story. I was like, This is what's going on when when you really don't have it fleshed out, I think I we all do that a lot. And so that's sort of where I am now that I really wish we would have gotten more. David draws her beautifully, mm -hmm. so I think yeah. I sort of gloss over things sometimes. And that happens a lot with him because his. I just realize I just stare at the art and sometimes don't realize that like I don't even know anything about this character. I also think that's a positive though. Yeah. One of the one of the joys of comics is you've got people who are super powerful, you know, who stand for good and justice in some not terribly descript way, and they wear masks. So that could be you under there. You know, it's the power of Spider Man. That could be me, right? Mm -hmm. Um. I don't think it's necessarily bad that you've got a character that we've given just enough of a hint of this is a strong woman like to give you as a reader the ability to project your own story onto that right so if I want to go to the storyteller Walter mm -hmm. Benjamin and argue that like literature is created in the mind of the reader not the mind of the writer the writer gives you a script and then the reader is where the play plays out in your head right 
sure, some of that exists. And I think it's fine for you to build a headcanon for you, me, everyone to build a headcanon that's there. I just question it because there's I just for me, I need a little more to make the the uncomfortableness that that Anna was just talking about go away, right? There's there's an uncomfortableness of, wait a minute, is this a character who I can feel can realistically consent? And in order for me to be okay with it, I had to decide this thing where, no, she has sex all the time. It's just not about babies. Like, I had to decide that in order to make the story work. And that's a little more work than I really feel like mm-hmm. I should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the final thing I'll say about it, because I just, I do want to move on to talk about the Brian thing. It's just, uh, this is going to be another sort of critical thing. And I'm sorry, but it's just that, <laughs> just part of it too is sort of the way that it's drawn in contrast to some of other some other sort of Kurt romantic moments from the comic and I mean this is very similar to the kiss and the dream sequence in terms of kind of it being a violent clashing together of bodies in the initial kiss but I kind of can't help it like in terms of thinking about I thought the kiss and the dream sequence made sense because it was Kurt's dream and it was his fantasy but this isn't supposed to be his fantasy anymore this is happening in reality and yet he's being given his fantasy in reality and that uh, there's not sort of a critical aspect to that anymore like he's just being given his own masculine fantasy and not being forced to interrogate what goes into that fantasy and that makes me a little bit uncomfortable too because we've talked a little bit about this in the past sort of like the remasculinization of Kurt under Davis and I do think Mm -hmm. it's something that happens throughout the Davis written run of Excalibur that, you know, I, I just, I can't help it. I think that the sexiest nightcrawler scene in Excalibur is Excalibur number four, where he's flat on his back with Megan on top of him. And that's a little bit more sexy to me in terms of the, you know, hints of gender bending that you have there, which are sort of exaggerated by Megan transforming into Kurt versus I think about the kiss here, it's him pulling her into a room and then slamming himself into her with like all of his muscles you know bristling as he does so and she looks surprised and i get that it's sort of an inversion of the kiss from the party issue you know this is him taking on the alpha male role whereas previously she'd you know captured him in that embrace and sort of taken on an alpha role so you know maybe this is just evening the score or something but is it about keeping score or is it about maintaining a consistency of who these characters are and what the dynamics of this relationship are and the thing that I liked about that first kiss was that okay well maybe Cerise is offering something to Kurt having to do with fantasies of you know for lack of a better word domination you know who he wants to be in a gendered relationship whereas this just feels like him being a very traditional alpha male and I'm like is that what he wants is that what's interesting about Cerise and I just I'm just not sold on that dynamic I do a lot of work to try to make this relationship work for myself as well but I'm having to work against the story a lot in this particular scene I find despite liking the images out of context on their own to be fair this is me being Nightcrawler's unofficial PR manager Um, (laughs) I I don't think um, I don't think that's real though right this is a performance for the Warpies. Kurt's not fantasizing when he, yeah. You know, okay, like, yeah, he yeah, is, yeah, that's you know, true. He is, that's true. You know, that's I am true. being a dude, and look, I'm about to go make love to this woman. Enjoy that's this, true. kids, right? Mm-hmm. When they have their real kiss where they profess their love for each other, it's much more consensual. It's like four pages later. Now, I mean, dick move sort of doing it, you know, without like warning Cerise. 
but you know he's trying to save lives blah 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 80s 90s morality is kind of problematic sometimes but i don't think that kiss is really kurt's fantasy at least in this comic this this kiss is no, I've got to sell this for the kids in the cheap seat. I got to make them think that we're about to have sex. Yeah, yeah. I like that interpretation. I like that that you're like, okay, this is this isn't my fantasy. This is a fantasy that others, well, the Warpies want need to see in order to sell them something. I mean, that that does help me think about the scene. Yeah. I think that's that's great. That is some good <laughs> PR managing, and I do, I do, I do agree with you too. That that works for me because I do. It is super funny. Like the like, man, we're gonna kiss so good that they're gonna think we're engaged in sex for several hours, and that is explicitly what Kurt says. And he's just like, nailed it, nailed it. <laughs> all right on that positive spin on it let's like turn toward the brian story a little bit here and i'll start with your thoughts about it valentino like you said you had a lot of thoughts about sort of brian's character journey and i think that's very important to talk about with this issue because in so many ways this is the climax of everything that davis has been doing with the character like way back from when davis was doing stuff with the character in the captain britain comics you know to come to this moment where he's faced with uh this fascist national guy and negotiating his relationship to that and to the idea of the Captain Britain Corps and to the idea of Britain to the idea of himself as a nationalist hero and also acting through this kind of self-sacrifice and martyrdom and like self-punishment that all seem like they're parts of Brian's character and I've got a lot of thoughts about it, but they're not well formed. So help me figure it out, Valentino. Did you find that this was a meaningful or just interesting sort of climax for Brian's journey? Um, certainly interesting. <laughs> um, meaningful is in there somewhere, but it's certainly interesting. Again, I think like, I mean, the art makes me want to believe it. I mean, it seems yeah. rushed at some level, but I do think that it's, I, I like mostly what Brian is saying, I don't know when he's sort of debating between like what it means to be Captain Britain and what that means as opposed to being a nationalist hero, but still having the name. And I was like, I don't know. You yeah. need to like tease that out a little bit more for me, Brian. But um, like visually, I think we're sold on it. Like, I don't know. Like I, I have the original copy and there's this moment where he, after he gets beaten up and you sort of zoom out on him and in the second panel here like his colors sort of get darker and almost reminiscent of like Nazi um Captain Britain I don't know if that's like looks like that in the reprint I can't see like a reprint edition but like they're almost that sort of purple and it was like an interesting moment where I was are they're like playing with this like he could go not that he could go either way but they're they're sort of layering those two figures for me at least and I thought that like his eventual decision to reject the nationalist fantasy and the and the conspiracy as he called the conspiracy theory is I think really really great and I think it's you know, what Davis is, Davis is trying to do something really interesting. It does feel a little forced. So to go back to my earlier point, though, about like creating space, I don't know if this is going to make any sense, but I do believe that Davis tries to do, it's another, Davis tries to do this again, where like in separating Brian and Megan, I do feel like he gives Brian like an internal space to think about this, this. And I think that like, for me, this is where the most psychological development happens is in like what we don't hear going on, like where he's sitting there wondering if Megan's going to be okay. I realize it's a hologram, but you know, he's proposing to her in a few issues before, just like minutes before this 
happen, mm-hmm. presumably, or maybe a day or so. And so you can imagine that like in time, in the time that he's sort of sitting there suffering, he is sort of thinking, again, we don't sort of get it. And I wish we had like wonderful Claremont thought bubble, but I think maybe yeah. it's me just projecting, but I could, re- I could imagine that in that moment, he's like rethinking his entire life. I mean, I don't think that's impossible to imagine. So mm-hmm. that's my story that's happening in Brian's head. I'm like, you know, if I had a thought bubble that I would add, he's rethinking everything. So I guess I'm sort of sold on it, but I have to add to to sell myself on it. Mm. Yeah. I just want yeah. to point out that your thing about the coloring, I'm going to say it's intentional because Glennis Oliver color, colored this and Glennis Oliver doesn't make coloring mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So do you, do you see it? Do you have the original like copy or do yeah. you? Are you or, yeah. Or, yeah. It's, yeah. At, it's, at, it's at the bottom of page 19, right? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, I think like it's, it almost is reminiscent of like the Nazi kept in Britain, right? Like the coloring, it changes like specifically. I mean, I think it's on purpose that the coloring slightly changes so you so you you sort of think back to it's that shadowed, moment yeah it's that other costume. right before roma i mean I, you could read it that way or you could read it as the lights are going out as captain britain is dying right before but yeah in, in any case like it is clearly an intentional coloring choice that is made because again glennis oliver doesn't make mistakes so this is clearly <laughs> yeah and i want to read it as we're just like here's this moment for brian like here's this major moment like hey which way is he going to go because you know he's He's hurt. He's presumably, you know, very angry. And which way is his anger going to take him? Is it going to open up? Like, I mean, if we think about it, just like psychologically, is he going to allow himself to use his aggression productively? Or is he going to, you know, or is he going to use it in a way that hurts others? Yeah, Yeah, that was sort of a lot of my complicated feelings about it had to do with that and the way that it was trying to sell me on the redemptive nature of Brian's anger. You know, that if his anger is directed in the right way, if he's standing up for the right cause, is that sort of his emotiveness, his impetuousness, his anger can be a positive mm-hmm. thing. And I don't even disagree with that as a concept. Sometimes anger is justified. Sometimes violence is justified. I'm not a pacifist. I believe that. I mean, the reason it gives me pause is because it is such a total redemption of Brian in the sense that, okay, he gets this cartoonish fascist nationalist villain to stand up against and redeem himself against and martyr himself against and die and Mm -hmm. effectively get reborn. And that works for me within the narrative. I think it's really selling it well. I really do think it's selling it well. I feel for Brian here. I'm on his side. I am rooting for him to get up again. I am worried about him. I feel for him when he's so badly hurt and he's lying there. Like this is probably the most I've ever felt for Brian. I do genuinely feel for him the way this is set up narratively and the way that it's rendered visually. I really do. And yet I'm like, what is happening here though? Like he's getting reborn as a purer version of himself or is he still going to be a version of himself that he still has these problems and it's like uh, it's hard because we're not going to know because Davis is going to leave the book and then it's going to change so I just it's hard. I I don't I don't think so though. I don't think he's being reborn by Roma here. And again, I'm I'm classifying this for, you know, several issues from now. But like I don't think he's being reborn into a different person here. I think we are supposed to read this as Brian is taking stock of who and what he is and coming to grips with it. And it's the conclusion yeah. of his arc. And here's why Davis, again, he's got to know he's leaving the book by now. He's got to know. Cause he's only got a couple issues left. So, or at least he's thinking about it. Right. But also Davis has been working on this character on and off for a decade now. 
Um, not quite, uh, but not quite, right. almost. But, he, but since the original Captain Britain run, more so than anybody, including Claremont, he's been through this. And he has an idea of where the arc's yeah, going. He's yeah. got an idea of where Brian is. He knows why Brian's abusive. He knows why. And that's, I mean, he might not agree with, say, Claremont or even me on like the, the way the character should be. But he has a take on it. And the take is very much um, solidified for me on page 10 when Brian has the conversation with um, Peter and his most Matthew McConaughey looking um, stage where, um, (laughs) where, where Peter is basically like, you know, we're, you know, we don't want you to go and fight. We want you to go stand for us and you're going to do this. You're going to serve the nation. And Brian says, he basically says he's, he's like politics. I'm not into politics. And then he finally says, I'm not a propaganda puppet. I punch villains. And this is a guy, Davis knows that Brian wants to be a scientist. Davis knows that who Brian is, but Brian is taking stock of himself right here and saying, I punch villains. This is what I do. I'm, you know, I'm Captain Britain and I point me at the bad guy and I'm going to go beat him. Even without my powers, even if it kills me, I'm going to fight these monsters here. He's going to fight Warpies by himself with no superpowers because I'm Captain Britain. And this is what it means to be Captain Britain to me. And given that he's about to go into the speech after this of it's not about, you know, I didn't get this costume. I didn't choose this. This was given to me. I don't care about nationalism. I don't care about colonialism. I am, you know, I'm standing for all people. I don't know that, like, I believe Brian is that person. But in this moment, Alan Davis believes Brian is, this, is that person. And I think that that matters, right? Like, this is the statement that he's making with this character. Yeah, I mean, even the degree of nihilism that Brian has in this moment works for me, though, on a character level. Like, him being like, I don't believe in any of that stuff. I just punch villains because he's never really embraced his identity as Captain Britain. And that works in different ways, right? It's an abdication abdication of responsibility. But, you know, it's also situating him in theory outside of that nationalist framework. I mean, the thing I like about it is that it's complicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like on the one hand, very heavy handed. And yet I think that there's a lot of complexity having to do, you know, once again, I just keep thinking of the darkness of Brian's sort of almost desire to be punished, which we've mm-hmm. seen come up and up like again and again yeah. and again. We've seen suicidal ideation with this character. And when I read all of that context into this, it becomes additionally interesting as well. I don't really know where I want to go with that, but that's part of my emotional reaction to the scene, definitely. Anyway, Andrew, I wanted to give you a chance to to speak about it because I know you had thoughts that you mentioned <laughs> right off the top. So, I mean, how are you feeling about, about this discussion? What do you want to add? I'm going to apologize. I'm still on the other side. Um, and I, I will defer especially to Valentino because I don't have expertise in this. But But for me... The issue is with the nationalist portrayal. Like, yeah, he's he's rejecting nationalism. His name is Captain Britain. He's the leader of a team called Excalibur in a book titled Excalibur. And his reward is to be resurrected and healed by an Arthurian goddess. You know what I mean? You can't reject British colonialism and then steep yourself in all the icons and symbols of it, in, in my viewpoint. And I, I think he's also particularly aligned with the Warpies, right? Because he's taking their side. The Warpies are a symbol, in my mind, in my reading, which is maybe flawed, um, of the British youth rejecting imperialism. But again, I'm not sure they have that choice anymore in 1993. So so to me, it reads as very um, trying to define this, this new British identity outside of colonialism, but it doesn't reach escape velocity for me because it's still so steeped in all the symbols of British colonialism. And I'm not sure there's a way that Davis even could 
um, um, get through that given what he has to work with here uh, and the ways that Excalibur was always framed as the British comic. I think I agree with everything you said. I think I keep thinking about it like psychologically because I think that's like what I, I mean, that's what I do. But I mean, I think, yeah, my complication is that he's rejecting this. But as I said earlier, like he's still in costume as Captain Britain. He still has, even as he says, like, He's sort of defining where he stands, but it's not very much further from where he was. And though I think internally he's, he might be somewhat different. Though at the same time, like I know we're talking about his like journey and I sometimes think like this happened very quickly. And I wonder like if it would have happened you know, over a longer period of time, meaning that I know that Davis is working on him over time. But I mean, in, you know, three issues ago, he's proposing to Megan and, and I think you know, the podcast, you talk about the fact that he doesn't even mention like anything about her. So he's still, so I mean, I'm thinking in context of that, like, I don't think he's, you know, he's not very insightful, though. I think that like, I think he's trying to get somewhere. Um, Davis is trying to get him somewhere. And I think that it doesn't necessarily get all the way there. But I do think that, I mean, he's he's changing for sure. But I wish that, I mean, I wish there there was something a little bit more. There, I think, I wish that we had a little bit more time to understand, like, what's going on inside of him. I think that, I think, like, I know Davis doesn't really, like, I mean, Davis doesn't use thought process, like, the way that Claremont did. And I wish we had, and I understand it's also the time period. But, like, I wish we got a sense of, like, what was going on inside. Maybe that would, if we could get a sense that he was conflicted more, I think that would help us. I mean, the big change that I see, and I don't know really where I want to go with it, but is his willingness to be resurrected, whereas an earlier version of Brian, I think, would have not wanted to be resurrected. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. like, I mean, he because he he has something to live for now. And, you know, maybe the something to live for is Megan. Maybe the something to live for is that he feels a sense of purpose now that he didn't before. But I do think that that change is different because we've seen Brian get beaten to a pulp before and wish for death. And here he is, like, hoping for life and i think that's maybe one of the changes we're meant to perceive and i do find myself reacting emotionally to that and like realizing that as a change because again that darkness that's in brian i do find very compelling as a character trait and mm-hmm. yeah i did find that moment with roma quite moving on that level yeah I'm i can see that as everyone knows my function on this show is to be the bright happy one who's always positive yeah that's what i do <laughs> um, <laughs> is, is, here's my reparative work on brian as his pr manager is the um yeah i know um does this work in that you said something uh, earlier andrew about like you know can we do this whole post-colonial post-national thing with the warpies as they're, they're still british you know brian's still british is the complication the point right like brian may brian gives this speech where he's like i'm not about colonialism i'm here to serve for the people and it's like dude you're wrapped in the in the british flag that's what you are right this is the same thing that happens in captain america comics a lot right like captain mm-hmm. steve rogers yeah. often gives the i stand for the world and i'm like do you though you know <laughs> <laughs> because and I, and I think this is different you know it's weird because i i since of the three of us two-thirds of us on the who are the regulars are canadian right the canadian marvel heroes mostly don't just walk around in your flag right like there's a point where alpha flight does right but alpha flight's costumes are not just the maple leaf usually right north star's got his own look you know whereas captain america captain britain are i'm going to look like this and i'm going to represent this and isn't that the story of modern british nationalism in 1993 and even in 2023 right isn't the story 
No, we're trying to move beyond the atrocities of our past that we perpetuated for 500, 600 years, right? Like, sure, right? Like, you might want to move beyond it, but it's not like you can just, you can't just wave your, you know, magic wand. It's still a story. So isn't that what's going on here? Like, Brian's saying, I don't stand for this. I stand for just being a hero. But then we read it and we go, do you, though? And, like, is that intentional? Or even if it's not intentional, is it is it still, I think it's still a valid reading, right? It, it's just, it's how we have to read it. And I think that that's sort of important. Well, yeah, because, I mean, it's sort of opposing a British mythology that's been co-opted by nationalism in the form of the Captain or the, the, the King right. Arthur mythology. You know, we talked about on, on our previous podcast the way that that's been co-opted by, by certain nationalist narratives, even though it wasn't necessarily that originally. It's been, you know, meant different things at different times. So it's like choosing that magical heritage instead of the current political heritage. But is that a true opposition at this time? And I admit that... I I was rooting for Brian in this scene, but I was also really rooting for him to have like a nomad moment where he's like, fuck this. I'm not yeah. being Captain Britain anymore. I'm going to be my own person now. And I, I know it's wrong for me to want it to be a different story, but I would have loved that. I would have really loved that. <laughs> but, but see, that's, and that's my thing. That's too much, right? Because, because this is, and again, I don't know, I don't know enough about Canadian politics. This is a real thing in American politics, right? Where people are very, very often wanting to move beyond you know the atrocities of the past of the united states and yet still going yeah but you know usa usa like it is paradoxical and sort of i think it works in that he wants this he wants to repurpose what this means but he can't quite right like i think the failing is the point that's interesting i like that yeah no, I think that is really interesting. Um, I was going to just say, I mean, it's hard to not, I mean, even if Brian wants to reject it and go back to an earlier sort of understanding of this myth, or if Davis wants to, like, it's impossible to do that, right? I mean, as much as he wants to, like, once a, once a myth has been co-opted, I mean, you can certainly repurpose it, but it's always going to be there, right? I mean, it would be a disservice to ignore that. So I do think, like, the complications are, are always going to be there. And that sort of amb ambivalence that he's dealing with, I guess, internally, it is sort of interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, having him remain Captain Britain in theory allows us to keep dealing with those complications, you know, if I'm going to be charitable mm. about it. Let's talk about some of the other stuff, like the plot stuff and the wrapping up the Warpies plot and all of that stuff, because there's just like a whole lot of other things that happen here that I don't know. I don't know even know like how to approach it because it's like a dense issue. There is a lot and there's mm -hmm. a lot of exposition. I guess maybe the question I want to ask is about the resolution of the Warpies plot because this is effectively going to be the resolution of their plot Never. for many, many years. Yeah, well, we're going to see them again in some 21st century comics briefly. But yeah. yeah, effectively, this is the resolution of their story. So, okay, I had a question, actually, like a practical question. So is the destabilization that they're experiencing, that's presumably just still going to keep happening, right? We didn't fix yeah. that. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I don't think again. I didn't. I kept looking back. And I was like, no. did I miss? Did I miss it? So there's like 67 or so warpies that are in that are like in stasis are uh -huh. still there, right? 
Yeah, because Peter was putting some people in stasis, like as a MacGuffin thing, but also some of them were legitimately destabilizing because of the energy matrix being messed up. So that's still going to keep happening, right? But is my understanding supposed to be that like Michael and Gabriel and Alistair are going to work on fixing this, I guess? Maybe charitably? No, I think that's exactly it. I think that Alistair says, no, I'm going to stay behind and run things. I'm going to help things. I I, I think he's, you know, Alistair's a scientist, so he's going to stay behind and do some sciencey stuff and, and, and help. I mean, and we're never going to get back to the story. Yeah. So I, but you know, maybe, but like, you know, sometimes you just, you, you, you don't just cure coronavirus in a week, you know, he'll stay and he'll go, he'll, oh, for he'll sure. do the work. Yeah. That's the, that's what he's doing. You know, he's like, I'm going to, yeah, this is important. I'm, I'm going to be the guy who does this now. Yeah. And that makes, yeah. that makes sense. But it's just like the way it was phrased though. It's like, oh yeah, I'll just stay here and take care of the warpies. And there was no mention yeah. of the disease at all. So I was like, that was a bit, I mean, given how much we have talked about Davis overwriting from time to time, he sort of over underwrote he, that part. He really, I mean, again, this is why I think he knows he's leaving because he kills a lot of plot lines in this issue. He's like, I've got to get through Brian's inconsistency. Mm, I got to get through. Mm. There's a lot of, we need to, you know, got to get through and, and just burn these things off. And I think that's one of them. And this is where it's like a pacing issue because I, I complained the last two issues about not enough happening here. You know, like did we really need a whole issue just to just to basically read Kurt's, you know, official handbook entry on, uh, off. And, and I know you like that issue, but like throwing some of this plot in that issue might have helped, right? Like, I, like, I don't know. I don't even exactly know what was making the Warpies sick. I, I guess you know because the matrix was cut off and science like that's what i get here right like and, and it's it is weird that that's not like really dealt with i mean they also in this issue just sort of offhandedly say yeah by the way warpy's not actually units moving on like that's <laughs> like that's so like there is a lot of quickness there's like a lot of really quick burn here that i think is kind of uh just clearing the table and that could have been done better Okay, yeah, like, what was your kind of mileage on the resolution of these plot threads, Valentino? So, I mean, I think I feel similarly. Like, I was thinking, like, this is going really fast. I think, like you, I didn't know what Alistair was going to do. Like, I think it was implied, like you said, and like Mav Mav said as well, that, like, it's implied that he's going to work on this. But, I mean, Davis doesn't say that. And I wondered if, like, it's sort of, if Davis imagined he was going to come back to this plot and sort of tell it, update us later or, or what. But, I mean, clearly everything goes really fast. And then Rachel just appears at the end, which, I mean, I never mind Rachel just appearing out of nowhere. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, I think I agree with everybody else. But, like, Davis must have known at this point. And I even wondered, like, if, like, I think, what, the next issue is double-sized or one of them is double-sized? One of the last ones, right? I was wondering, too, if he just, like, pushed together two issues. Like, if he thought he had more, and then all of a sudden he realizes he doesn't. I don't, I mean, I'm sort of just wondering about that and thinking, okay, well, he figured he has to just wrap this stuff up, which which is sad, because they gave him, I felt like, you know, this happens on Excalibur now a second time, right? Claremont leaves abruptly. It seems like Davis was given a little bit more time to leave, but it seems pretty abrupt that he has to wrap things up, and it's a, it's a sad moment. 
I mean, I will speak in favor of it in the sense that, because I think this is something that's come up in a number of comments on our Twitter feed as well, that for how much we can criticize some of his writing being heavy handed at times and some of the wrapping up of plot threads feeling rushed or sort of feeling over explained, even though we're complaining also about under explaining in this particular instance, (laughs) but still how grateful you can feel for those things as a reader of serialized stories who is used to plot threads just being dropped and never being resolved and there is a lot of respect that davis has for the reader that you know to know that i'm not going to get to finish this plot but i am not going to leave this hanging i am going to you know reward the loyalty of the readers by wrapping up these plot threads and even going back to wrap up plot threads from 1988 you know bringing michael and gabriel back and being like oh where we've been this entire time is that we've been in suspended animation and you know i made a joke about it in the summary but like how good is it that they're in their 1988 looks looking incredibly 1988 and they're like it's 1993 now what I don't know how intentional that visual gag was, but it was amazing because I mean, he just drew them how mm-hmm. he drew them in 1988. It was great. So, you know, him doing all that work, I think, is something a lot of readers of this comic really appreciate. And I mean, please discuss it on our Twitter and see if you feel that way, too, because I have gotten that feedback from people that, you know, we can criticize it not being perfect storytelling all we want, but there is a real gratefulness for his effort to resolve those plot threads. And, you know, even if it mm-hmm. wasn't always done in the most artistic way again you feel very honored by that because you're like i cared about these things i did want answers to these questions and here is alan davis putting in the work to at least give us answers and i definitely appreciate that as a reader you know we often don't get that in superhero comics stuff just gets dropped stuff just doesn't get explained and to have it get explained is comforting and nice and rewarding and that i think is actually one of the things i really like about this issue you know i've said a lot of you know critical things about it but when i got to the end of this one i did feel a nice sense of completion having talked through this storyline on the podcast for all these weeks and having some of this stuff wrapped up I did feel I felt good about it I was like it feels nice to get the resolution on some of these questions you know again even though we can criticize certain aspects of how it was done yeah I want to sorry I just want to add in there that yeah no I feel like I'm being so critical of it and and, but I do feel like I mean I think this issue is very fun I want to say that before like you know I'd never come back before I everybody thinks that I hate this issue or like the listeners but I mean I think it's a great issue I think when we sort of like dive into like sort of the details of like what's going on in Brian's mind and sort of like what's going on with Cerise like I think there are there's some complexities that we'd like and dislike but I mean overall I think it's the best issue of the Warpies arc for me like it's by far the best issue of the Warpies arc so, I mean which is which to me is like not my favorite Davis arc but I do think that this is the best issue of it and I definitely think it's a fun issue that highlights some really great parts of these characters characters like even Rachel coming in and only getting that short scene like I do think that he gets Rachel and like he shows that he understands the main the what I what we think at least what I think of like the main figures right like Kitty Kurt Rachel Brian and Megan doesn't do much in the issue but um (laughs) but let's I mean but let's say she but she has a good portrayal in the issue let's say um but I do think it's a fun issue I do think that we have some really good character moments I would I mean I'm happy with it and and I like where it ends 
Yeah, and I mean, I'll, I'll stand up for the, you know, yeah, Megan's not in it much, but I actually do like the little exchange that she has with Kurt, where she's explaining True. to him, you know, her perspective of the situation, and he's like, I understand what you're saying, Megan, thank you for, you know, <laughs> your insight into the situation, and then she contributes to the solution, right? And I, I did, it was a little thing, but I did like that, because it was nice seeing them sort of interact as teammates and sort of working on the solution together, and again, it was like mm-hmm. three panels, but I did still like how that was handled, even though Megan doesn't have a huge role in this story. Have we turned you around on it at all, Mav? Or are you still feeling unsatisfied it, by this conclusion? It, I mean, again, I don't hate it. It's, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I got, that's, that's where I'm at with it. It's just like, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm left with as many questions as answers, but that's mostly because of how rushed it is. And so it, it, it's entirely a pacing issue. Like I, Like, I really feel like if some of these beats had been covered in the last two issues where I felt like, um, we're we're not really doing much that would have been better and i don't know which yeah, ones yeah. like this it's just stuff needed time to breathe yeah i mean i'm of two minds about it because i did have one of those reactions where i'm just like this was a lot of comic book and i right. feel like i got my money's worth there were gray moments for everybody and yet it was also a lot of comic book in the sense that <laughs> i do wish some of those emotional beats had had a little bit more chance to breathe and again mm-hmm. we can't help it we're all doing the thing like we know what's happening in the future so it's like right. it's hard right i mean i wanted to ask a question of the two of you that we haven't really addressed although i mentioned it in passing in an earlier episode which is peter's representation as sort of a priestly character and like do we want to talk about that or the significance of that i don't really have much on it i mean the members of rcx have biblical names and like peter is sort of setting himself up as an evangelical character in some ways well, it's british so it's not really that but well, i don't no, know did, it, I, did it, either of you have thoughts about it i thought it's confusing i think that you could do and many many comics do. I think there are very interesting critiques of he's not just an evangelical. They are being rendered as though they are priestly, like very Catholic, but definitely ministerial. He's wearing a, a collar, right? He is very much. I am a minister. There could be a critique of the church here. There's not really. It's more of a critique of British national. Like I actually really enjoy Peter's speech where he goes. You might not be old enough to remember, but I remember when we really were an empire and now we're just one sad little island off the coast of Europe. That's powerful. That's like, a, you know, it's deplorable, but it's powerful, right? It's him saying, look, I am pulling for colonialism. This is what I am. And that's interesting. And that really doesn't have to do much with his churchiness or his, it, there's no theological spin there. So like, I feel like there was going to be more of something to do with like his Christianness that doesn't really get picked up on again he's just like i mean i guess i could do the reparative work and write the story and say yeah this is a this is a a way of representing the ways in which people try to justify their deplorable political beliefs with god but like i don't really really think that's there other than just the outfit did you have thoughts about it valentino um yeah i mean i don't think i i mean i think Mav summed it up really well i mean i think like it would have been great visually i mean like he's white he's like a white christian nationalist right like i mean i think visually we get that and i don't know if davis wanted us to go there i assume he did i don't really know but i don't think that it gets this i mean it doesn't get discussed at all i mean like it would have been great to sort of see him as a like as a follow-up to like a God loves man kills, right? Sort of like Davis's version of that. That would have been fascinating. And I, I wonder like, would he have gone, would he have gone there? It's not clear. Um, I wondered too, like when I first, 
got back to this issue as an adult now. And I was like, huh, why does he look like a priest? And I mean, I went to Catholic school, so this is especially like, why does he look like a priest? But that never gets discussed in any depth, and I, I wish it would have. I mean, I think he definitely could have made this his version of God Loves Man Kills or something like that. I, I don't know. That's the story. Okay, that's the story I would write then. RC, my version <laughs> of, of God Loves Man Kills through RCX, drawn by Alan Davis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely read the hell out of that. But that's that's my thoughts on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't really have. I mean, again, the reason we haven't talked about it is that I don't have anything really sophisticated to say about it, other than something I already said on a previous episode, which is like it feels deliberate that Kurt is the one who gets to punch him in the like big violent panel. I mean, Kurt, the Catholic character, gets to punch the evil priest. I feel like that's deliberate, but I mean, it's not deliberate other than the fact that yeah because i mean kurt's religion isn't mentioned throughout this arc it's just a thing that we know contextually about kurt so i mean that is something you have to bring to that to make it work but it's satisfying to me (laughs) anyway yeah (laughs) so here's and here's why i I think it's a lost i think i think there's supposed to be more because here's here's a thing that happens right the character's name is nigel something weird orpington uh, smith Smith, yeah Yeah, that's his name nigel orpington smith but he calls himself peter because he's taken a biblical name Mm -hmm. if you go back a few issues to where he was introduced they make a big deal of pointing this out to you now nigel orpington smith is not a character from before this is not we're not going back and and reclaiming a character and doing something deep davis just wrote a complex character who uses two different names and that's supposed to be a big deal and nothing comes of and nothing's going to come of it this is the last time it's going to be mentioned so so like i don't know why like it's not his last appearance i I mean spoilers we'll see him again one more time but like the whole idea of why did you take this biblical motif at all i don't know yeah i feel like it's sort of buried in sort of preoccupations of alan moore from the original run which are sort of too much to get into on this particular Mm -hmm. podcast but yeah it just it wasn't really sort of a compelling aspect of this arc to me other than that wonderful visual of Kurt punching him. (laughs) Anyway, let's move to some final thoughts um, about this issue. And I'll give you the last word about it, Valentino. But um, Andrew, let's start with you. Anything you wanted to touch on that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Sure. I'll I'll just say that um, one of the things that I find kind of cheesy, and I don't even know if I dislike it, but the idea of like the massive battle happens and the long arc is finally resolved. And then the character just shows up at the end and it's like, hey guys, what I miss? Uh, to start the next arc. This was a really flagrant example of that. And again, I, I might even find it kind of enjoyable, but it was um, it was it was a bit, bit tropish. Right? Yeah. Right? Red. Hey. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> exactly. I didn't mind it. I was willing to be charitable because it was one of those like silliness of superhero comics things yeah. where I was willing to I was willing to roll with it. Plus, like, yeah, you know, as we talked about, you know, that reunion panel with everybody hugging is just yes. beautiful. That's that's a top five Excalibur panel. Just I love it so much. How about you, Mav? Any final thoughts about this issue? Yeah, Kylan got to use his power for a reason. I know, he did. He did. <laughs> it it Kylan... did nothing, but he did it. No, it did. He scared away some of them. Some of them, yeah. <laughs> some of them were scared. I was so proud of him. It's like Kylan's like, Kylan's like, oh, well, you know, maybe. And I just love that he was like, they knew what my power was. I don't know how, because like, he doesn't make a big deal. And they did not bother to neutralize me, and they're going to pay. 
and I was like, oh, you go, Kylan. And I love that. That was my that's my favorite thing in this comic. That Aww. makes everything else worth it. It's just like Kylan's like, look, with the roar of the Erathian Gnozazdia. Okay. <laughs> but I was just like I, in my imagination, Kylan's powers don't all, only make the sound, they also, you know. Like like Adamatopia in uh, in DC Comics, they just appear like visually. He's doing that. I I don't know. I really enjoyed that he did this thing and he had the giant roar and like it's drawn such that the letters are almost knocking people over. Love that. So that was my final thought. Yeah, I liked I liked that too. That was good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I guess my final thought was just be to emphasize again, sort of the loveliness of the Rachel reunion, you know, especially when I think contrasted with, you know, that moment that she leaves, and we didn't have sort of any emotional reaction from Kitty, you know, when the Phoenix takes her off to the stars and that Excalibur 52, I think, and how unsatisfying that was. And so to have Davis drawing this reunion between them, of course, he didn't draw 52. And the fact that it's Rachel and Kitty at the center with Megan with her arms on Kitty and Rachel and Kurt with his arms on Kitty and Rachel and then Brian with his arms on Megan. Cerise is just kind of standing there. But you know, admittedly, her relationship to the team as a family isn't sort of completely clear at this moment. So I don't really know how I would position her differently. But she barely knows Ray. She yeah them. so they, yeah they, they overlapped very briefly like she met her like once it's but fine. i think I, com- I think i sort of complained very early sort of in our in our podcast about rachel and kitty not having a lot of those kind of mm-hmm. glances or sort of moments where they're really looking at each other with something that can be construed as love i mean obviously we've talked about the queer coding of them lots and lots and lots but i found some of those moments a little bit lacking compared to in the sort of earlier Claremont run between some characters there but this is definitely a moment where like I see it so much I mean it's the joy of reuniting with your friend but I mean there's so much love in this moment and then the close-up on their faces in the following panel to the way Kitty is looking at Rachel that's just like a beatific smile I mean there's just so much love in these panels and the rendering of this as a family with Kitty and Rachel at the center I just can't say enough good things about it I could look at this page all day um Valentino final thoughts about this issue stuff you want to return to stuff we didn't get a chance to talk about before we before we leave this issue behind i guess i would reiterate sort of the love for the rachel and kitty scene at the end like i just think like these are these moments i think davis does so well with his art and just capturing the love between these characters i mean we know that they're family that's what he wanted us to see at the beginning of the run he reinforces that here and his art really conveys that so well and i think that that's why despite all of the like problems that we might have about some of the minor interactions. Like Davis really does a lovely job of like just making us care about this this family. Um and I think that that's what's so much fun about it. I mean I just it's why I when I think of Excalibur, I mean I think of this section of the of the of the series. Like I think of, you know, forty two through sixty seven. I mean Davis really gives that to us and shows us here. Plus I think it makes a great like return for Rachel. I'm just sort of so happy that she's back. I know that like I mean, she's been in the last couple issues. Well, Phoenix has been in the last couple issues and she does appear herself in the previous issue. But this is just such a fun little moment where she's just like, yeah, so I know Phoenix like killed a bunch of people, but she had great fashion taste. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just think like, I shouldn't like that, but I do. Like, I'm not supposed to be okay with the fact that like, she's just like, yeah, that's okay that like 5 billion people died or, you know, but hey, it's a great costume. But like, I am okay with it. <laughs> well, 
I mean, the thing is, she is unarguably right. Like she is absolutely yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is the. It is the better look. The the red phoenix costume is the better look than the green phoenix costume, and she's correct. And they're like, okay, well, you know, what's a little genocide? It was my mom, not me. I right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Davis persuades us. Like, okay, that's fine. Like, that's just amazing for me. <laughs> Yeah, I I have to agree. I can't be mad at that moment. And then in the hug panel on the next page, like we get Kitty's great line of dialogue, like, oh, Rachel, it is you. Who else would be so outrageous just to make a fashion statement? And I'm like, I'm good with that, too. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Top tier Rachel moment. Yes. No, for me, like that is the moment that I remember between them. That's like one of these great moments. It's like there's a moment later that Claremont writes between Psylocke and, and Rachel where... Yeah. Oh, they're talking and they're saying, and one of them, I think Rachel, um, Silex says, I have enough power to smash mountains, but not enough to nest to pick up a dime. And Rachel says, so that's why you keep me around. It's one of those moments for me, like these small character moments. I was like, that's what I'm going to always keep in my mind about that captures the relationship for, you know, Silex and Rachel there. And this captures the relationship for Kitty and Rachel here for me. Yeah, we haven't. This is the first episode that we recorded since Rachel has finally canonically kissed a girl on panel at the time of this recording so we should acknowledge and congratulate ray for for this achievement after so many decades of coding it is a momentous occasion (laughs) as i tweeted out uh, the day it happened good job rachel and good job teeny howard for making that happen batwing Skin. Is this all you've learned, Morgana, to deal in potions and petty evil? And where have your meddling arts brought the world? To the edge of ruin? I'm worn thin and threadbare. I've tried to guide men or meddled in their affairs as you would have it for far too long. The time has come. So as I said, we will wrap things up there. Other than to thank our guests so dearly, thank you, Valentino, for joining us. We had some recording disruptions today, but we've powered through and made it to our conclusion, just like the characters in Excalibur. (laughs) But before we go, uh, let's remind our lovely listeners about what you get up to and where people can find you. Um, If you want to share a Twitter handle or plug any work or projects, now is the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is so fun. As I told you in an email, um, my younger self would never believe that I would be talking <laughs> on a podcast about Excalibur of all things. So thank Aww. you for making that happen. If I could time travel, I would drop a little note to myself and say, and, and then it'd be like, what does this mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what's a podcast? What's a podcast? <laughs> it's 1994. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Just to confuse my younger self. Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> but so where can you find me? Um, on Twitter, I think my Twitter is Valentino Luca Z. Um, I think uh, you can find me there. Um, I have a website with some of my stuff, which is just bzulo.com. The thing I'm most proud of, though, honestly, is I was I worked with the Ohio Center for the Book, which is a designation of the Library of Congress. I worked with them at Cleveland Public Library, and we created toolkits um, that we're still adding to um, that, that are hosted on the Ohio Center for the Book page that um, help you teach comics in your courses for people or book clubs. I mean, for book clubs, for courses, whatever. Um, and there's 11 up so far. 
that um, would help somebody create a comics course. They could either like print them out and use them or just sort of use them as like an outline for their courses. But we're trying to create toolkits for other librarians, for librarians or for academics or just anybody that wants to just sort of go through a bunch of comics and teach them or read them together in, a, in their own book club. Um, that you can find at the Ohio Center for the Books.org and they're the Git Graphic Comics Discussion Guides. So they sort of go through different levels, like they have just general discussion questions, they have discussion questions that are adapted to different interviews of creators, and then discussion questions adapted to scholarly articles that we also um, suggest. So you can do different, you can just do the main ones, you can add the scholarly articles and the interviews if you so choose. So that's that, I won't, I won't go into any more depth of that, but that's sort of the thing I'm most proud of. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited to link that on Twitter and on our website. And I definitely want to check that out too. So thank you for that. No problem. And thank you again for joining us. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing not Excalibur 66, but rather Excalibur Annual Number 1, which is set before it in continuity. It involves chaos, figuratively and literally. Uh, and then, the week after that, we'll be back for the last two issues of Davis's Run. Tears. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week, and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another colorful melee. Thank you, Valentino, for choosing our side. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought Forum Music for a truly epic theme song. Play us out. So many recording segments.